Hello and welcome to the finale for season five of the Gold Podcast. I can't quite believe we're here already. Time has flown by on me. I'm your host for today, Jade Williams, editorial executive here at Gold, filling in for our usual host, Isabel, while she's off enjoying the sun in the south of France. Sorry if I'm not sounding the best this week. There is a cold going around the entirety of England, I think, and it's caught me. This season really has been a great one, and to round it off, today I'll be sharing with you a great conversation I had with Christy Siegel, who's the General Manager for the Breast and Women's Cancers Portfolio at Novartis US Oncology. So as I mentioned, Christy is at Novartis heading up the Breast and Women's Cancers Portfolio, and she acts as a purpose-driven leader with an extensive knowledge base of the US commercial market, especially with regards to specialty disease areas such as respiratory and transplant. She prides herself on championing diversity, crafting creative cultures and collaboration. And this is something that we do get into during our discussion, so stay tuned. Without further ado, let's get into it. Christy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jade. Thankfully, our technology has held up today, aside from some connectivity issues, but hopefully it will stay strong throughout my questions for you. So I know you originally came from a general medicines background before you took on your position at Novartis, where you currently are. Could you tell us a little bit about your current duties and maybe go into what priorities both of these roles might share? Yes, thank you. And I'll also, Jade, be knocking on the wood at my table that the tech holds up. Um, So as you said, I I am currently the general manager for our U.S. breast and women's cancer portfolio. And really, my biggest priority in this role is to help as many uh, people, both men and women who have HR positive, HER2 negative, metastatic breast cancer, um, have the chance to live as long as they possibly can. Previously, my role before this was as the respiratory uh, commercial head, both in the U.S. and globally. So similar in terms of operational um, responsibilities, uh, specifically in the area of uh, asthma, allergic asthma, and chronic idiopathic urticaria, but also knowing I had a global role at the same time, I had the opportunity to work on some of our development and working with our drug development team and other countries to fine-tune and and prioritize what it is we wanted to proceed with in the respiratory field for our pipeline. I would say working for many years in specialty medicines and coming to oncology, you know, there is actually a lot of similarities. I am a scientist by my background, so I have a natural affinity and love for science. And so that's something that is so cool to me about oncology is the pace is like nothing I've experienced on the pharma or specialty medicine side of the business. It's exciting. At the same time, if I put myself in the shoes of a patient or a healthcare provider, oh my gosh, it's got to be completely overwhelming because there's constantly, every day, multiple new pieces of information, whether it be new drugs or new information about existing drugs that could really change the landscape of care. And I can just imagine how difficult it must be to truly stay on the cutting edge of science. And that's where I think my experience, my many years of experience on the specialty medicine side, um, helps me to discern what's truly important and how, from a human behavior perspective, what we need to focus on to help really make sure that changes are taking place with customers, with what they understand, as well as in the, the larger ecosystem. 
And then I would just say the very last thing, because you asked me how else are these jobs similar, and I think both of them, what I love is that in addition to being a business leader, is that I'm also an enterprise leader in both roles. I participated and still participate in a leadership team, and we're responsible for enterprise performance, uh, capabilities, and culture. And I think that is an incredible privilege and responsibility and also is what excites me too about some of the work that I'm doing internally in terms of disability inclusion. Very multifaceted role there, definitely. So yeah, the next thing I wanted to ask you was about oncology care inclusion and a farmer's sort of responsibility to patients post-care. And this is something that you had a bit of interest in. So I wanted to ask you how care can be extended to individuals with disabilities, both those that may be brought on by oncology treatments and for those that have pre-existing conditions entering into the space. Yeah, that's like a totally loaded question, Jade. <laughs> Thank you. Um, You're so welcome. <laughs> well, I think... Listen, I, I'm going to be honest right from the get-go. I think we have a, a, a long road to hoe, um, especially on the on the disabilities front. If I just take a big step back, I think where, where we're starting to do better as an industry is just even understand and empathize and figure out how to help patients beyond a very transactional um, product first way. And I think what's unique about oncology, which feeds to your question, is that people can develop cancer. A lot of people actually with disabilities have a higher propensity to develop cancer, and for many reasons that I won't go into right now. So you're looking at a group of people who have cancer who likely um, over-index on disability to begin with. And with many cancers, breast cancer included, especially in the metastatic phase of cancer, you, you, you be, even if you didn't have a disability before or you had one previously, it either gets exasperated or you often um, develop one. And this is an area where I think as an industry, while we do a lot of work and, and myself included in my team and doing ethnography and truly understanding the emotional journey, what else gets is affecting a patient physically and emotionally, I don't think we've fully acted on that information. What I mean by that, and if I think about, again, our, my the field that I'm in and preparing, for example, with early breast cancer, this is a younger audience. Um, so you, you're looking at women typically who, many of whom have not hit menopause. And so there's a huge emotional reaction um, and appropriately so, to how breast cancer, starting from the diagnosis through the surgery, through the post-surgical treatment options, affects the sexuality of a, a relatively young woman um, who before this didn't, would never even consider or think about um, her sexual health. It's just part of who she is. It's part of her identity. And now you're taking that component away. And I don't think until we did this ethnography work did we truly understand, yeah, we're so focused on the treatment at the, at the end of this journey to help somebody live as long as they can. But we have to understand what is it going to take emotionally to support that woman from the entire journey of that diagnosis, whether it be lumpectomy, uh, mastectomy, radiation or chemo. It, it is a huge burden to put on, on a woman, and it causes a lot of depression issues. 
So our job isn't just to educate, for example, on the product that we're bringing into the market, but it is to fully support that journey because that patient will never have the opportunity to, to go on treatment that can hopefully, hopefully prevent or reduce the risk of recurrence if we don't fully support the treatment journey. And I just don't think this is something as an industry, not just Novartis, um, but the industry overall has truly appreciated. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we can approach this. I'm talking about the emotional journey. Depression is a form of a disability. There's also other disparities. What I also learned in this particular research is if you're a young woman and you were of color, whether you be Hispanic or African-American, you were not taken um, very seriously. You really had to advocate um, to be heard. And the same is true even just for, if you looked at age alone, because you're young, you don't, you're not presenting as what's typically viewed to be a breast cancer patient. So there's a lot of different disparities and bias that inadvertently is in the system and I think really shows the need for industry to, to obviously educate at every level, both the patient and the entire healthcare ecosystem, but then also think about what is our role in that education above and beyond the product that we are specifically trying to focus. And to me, this is an area that is ripe for further development and collaboration across the industry. That's what's exciting too, is there's a lot of breakthrough treatments across the fields of breast cancer. And it is in all of our interests to work collaboratively, both across the pharma industry, as well as across patient associations and medical societies to specifically look through the lens of disability. We've already started in other areas, such as uh, race and ethnicity, but really disability is not one that we've focused specifically on. And it actually is the largest intersectionality um, of all of these, I'll call it minority uh, lenses. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you there. So would you say that furthering that education is the first step in making sure that access for those with disabilities is really institutionalized across the board? I think education, absolutely, because we need awareness. And I think even if you look in the literature, which I've done repeatedly, there's actually not a lot of uh, literature out there around uh, oncology outcomes for people with disabilities. It is a newer topic of research and, and publication. So I think it starts with just even making people aware. And when I even think about our materials, for example, if, I, if we look at our patient education materials, uh, it's a newer thing for us to have materials in other languages which it, it, you know, this, this, it takes time for us to, to go from awareness to education to then impact. And if I think about other forms of disability, so for example, if you have someone um, who is deaf and being treated, what is an office doing in terms of how they're communicating with that patient? What are we doing to make materials that are friendly for somebody who's blind, for example? Like we really need to be rethinking how we typically um, categorize education and the types of tools and resources um, that can help because the range of disabilities are many. I spoke about you know, mental health, that's a form of disability. There's physical disabilities like uh, hearing, vision, wheelchairs. They, pr they provide all different sorts of barriers that are not in common. So again, it goes back in my mind, we have to start with awareness and understanding and then education. But as part of that education, 
what more can we be doing in the industry? I just gave you the example of patient education materials. Um, but what else has to be true in the ecosystem? So if you're mobility impaired, uh, you might not be able to take certain diagnostic tests. That shouldn't be. <laughs> that, 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 that there's always ways to work around things. The question is, you know, are, if you're in a rural community in the U.S., are you having access to some of those particular um, tools? So again, I think, Jade, it starts with awareness, education, and then movement to action. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's quite strange coming from a small island like the UK and seeing the access disparities that can exist in the US. When you think of the US, you think, oh, it's roads, everyone can access everything. But food deserts out there is something that I realized that people have to travel so far just to go to a supermarket. And the people that are lacking out on healthcare because of this as well, it's just such a huge disparity. It's great to see that pharma companies are taking these first steps to really take action in this and make sure that people are able to access care as often and easily as they can. Agreed. And it's interesting because I think to your comment too, actually that was, I, as part of some of the ethnography work we did, I had the opportunity to go to one of the patients and spend um, a few days with her. And she was in a rural area um, in Illinois. And the food desert is exactly what you said. They have, you know, they store food, especially in the winter time, because the winters are really difficult there. So not only are you far from a store, but you have to buy large amounts of food on a fixed income um, and, and make sure that that food lasts. And what kind of food are you buying if you have to buy it you know, for long haul storage, especially if you're a cancer patient and, and you're really conscious of what you're putting into your body to support your overall health. So um, it was very eye-opening. And that's goes back that and actually, let me just share another fact that I also recently learned, which I didn't realize, was that there's actually more disability in rural communities in the U.S. So the general population in the U.S., if you were to average it, one in three adults has a disability. Um, in a rural community, it's actually more like 50% um, of adults have disability. So it's it's much more prevalent to have a disability and to struggle to get the health care of your choice or to even get access to that to that healthcare. So that's a problem overall for people. But imagine if you have a disability, again, whether it be intellectual, physical, et cetera, you're really relying on others to also take you to that care. So transportation is, is another key area. And that's a social determinant of health across many disparities that we see um, across race, as well as with uh, disability uh, equity as well. Mm. Yeah, it's such it's amazing the sort of stark differences you get. Over here we call it the postcode lottery. I suppose it's the be the zip code lottery over in the US. And it's just so much of your health is determined by where you live. It's such a shame. Um and I know that as somebody within the pharma ecosystem yourself, as a parent, um, disability access is something that's quite strong to your heart. I was just wondering if this is something you'd like to talk about and how you would recommend that the industry can work better to support the families of those that are living with disabilities. Yes. Yeah, so Jade, I don't think I would be sitting here having this conversation with you if I didn't um, see the or experience the effects of being a loved one and a caregiver for people with disabilities. Um, this experience, I think I'd be naive, to be honest, of what it's like. Uh, and this experience has definitely opened my world up to what is it like to live with a form of disability. So I am a mom of two children. 
Both my kids have epilepsy, um, and my daughter also has a rare genetic mutation that results in she's on the spectrum. She's got other developmental uh, delays around her physicality, her gross motor skills, as well as intellectual disability. So I do not have have one neurotypical child who has epilepsy, and I have a non-neurotypical child who also has epilepsy. And I would say my first foray into realizing, you know, even epilepsy as a disability, which it is for sure a disability, was um, when my son, who's my firstborn, was in kindergarten, and he was supposed to go to aftercare um, at, because I was working, (laughs) aftercare at our local YMCA. And now, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, YMCAs. I think they are worldwide, not just a a U.S. thing. Um, But but a lot of what a YMCA is rooted in is around giving back to the community and giving equal opportunity to everybody, um, which I really like those values of the Y. Well, of two weeks before my son was supposed to start um, kindergarten and therefore after school care, I got a call that they said they could not take my son because both my kids, when they have a seizure, they have to take an emergency rescue medication. Otherwise, they go into something called status epilepticus, which is seizures that do not resolve. A seizure should resolve within like a minute to two minutes at the most, um, but they don't. They just keep they just keep seizing and it becomes a medical emergency, as you can imagine. So this medicine, this rescue medicine for seizures at that point in time, basically you need to give it rectally. And the Y had a problem with that because they have a policy against sexual abuse. So I had to, I, I'm going to tell you, I didn't handle that well. No one knows what I look like on this podcast because it's a podcast that I have red hair. So if you can imagine any stereotype about redheaded people that might be on your mind in terms of a fiery personality, I'm also an Aries. And it didn't, it didn't land well when somebody told me that they couldn't give my son a life-saving uh, medication because of a concern and a conflict with a sexual abuse policy. I'm not advocating. Nobody is who has epilepsy to have uh, for sexual abuse. They're looking for, if God forbid a seizure happens, that someone can do something about it before it becomes life-threatening. And I took that case all the way up to the, the management of the, the why, and I fought to overturn this um, because I thought it's just wrong. I mean, how can a, an organization that gets funding from the federal government like the Y, um, and in the world of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, how can they say no because of concern and a conflict with their own sexual abuse policy? So I was successful, but that really opened up my eyes to the first of many situations where I have found my neurotypical son being stigmatized or marginalized, not being able to be included in things Um, because he had a medical condition. You fast forward to my daughter, who not only has epilepsy in the same type as my son, but also is on the autism spectrum and uh, intellectual disability. So again, a child, I have a child who I do not know will live independently. Not many people can say that about their kids. They're assuming their kids are healthy and will go on to live independent lives. That is an unknown in our situation, which... I'm okay with after many years of working on that. But I bring it up because these experiences of navigating the healthcare system, of navigating the education system, our society and what we value in terms of inclusion or lack thereof, many people are dealing with these things, whether it be for themselves or ones that they care about. And so I decided at one point, finally, to take the higher road and make my story public within our organization. And that's when I realized 
that when I talked about my situation publicly in a town hall, we had a we had a program at the time called It's Personal, um, and I I spoke about it. That story resonated so much. The amount of outreach that I received from people about what they were experiencing, but they were afraid to talk about it. That's when I knew we had a lot of work to do in our organization around disability inclusion. And that's when I raised my hand to become the executive sponsor for what we call our capable employee resource group, which is geared towards people either living with or allies of um, people with disabilities. We purposely call it capable because we want to focus people with disabilities. They, they, they're not disabled. Like that in and of itself has a negative connotation. They have very unique capabilities um, and points of view that, that are of high value to society and to organizations overall. And so really focusing on what is possible versus what is not um, is our mission. We made a lot of progress, but we have a lot of work to do in the areas of self-identification. So we've really improved, especially with COVID uh, access. We have a theme called ABLE from an accessibility perspective, making sure our, not just our physical offices, but our technology is accessible to people with all different types of disabilities. Um, belonging, we're specifically measuring um, belonging and how do people with disabilities feel included um, in our organization. Our focus is also on um, leadership and equity. So what are we doing to make sure that we are promoting a culture, not just of belonging, but that people are, feel that they're included, that it's not just about belonging, but that their needs are appreciated, understood. They're not always being asked to conform um, to, to, to what everybody else's needs are, but that we make it easier. And this is an area in particular where I feel like we have a lot of momentum right now in our organization on that piece of not just belonging, but also true inclusion. And so when you ask me, what do I think, what do I think pharma and our industry can do? I think the first thing you need to do is look in your own organization. And, and I mean, our people who work here are representative of the communities we are serving, whether that be our doctors. How many doctors have autism, for example, more than you would expect or probably presume. And our patients, like we just talked about, I think this just has become more obvious to me working in oncology and really digging in and doing the work to understand what are these dynamics. So I think we have a responsibility that starts at home with our own employee base. And then how do you take that? Once, once you've made enough momentum and progress, then how do we take that focus and impact to the external uh, community we serve? And that's what I'm really excited about you know, in, in the years to come here at Novartis. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really, I mean, congratulations, first of all, for overturning that ruling. That seems ridiculous, but I agree with you there. Um, but yeah, great to see that that unfortunate situation that you had to go through has made a positive impact for children with epilepsy for the future. And then, yeah, all it takes is one person to really open up the gates and make a change. So great to see you leading the charge for the capable group at Novartis. I hope that's something that other companies can also implement within their own structures. I'm just the voice. I see myself as the voice and the enabler for change because I'm an executive sponsor. But the real work, the real sense of community, the real actions that we're going to take are driven by the, the, the people who like live and breathe this employee resource group and create that sense of community and connection. I'm just helping them get what what is deserved and, and make sure that we get the right amount of resources as well to focus on this internally and, and then externally as well. 
Mm. Once that change happens within, you can really help patients and aid externally as well. So that's great to see. On a bit of a lighter note, hopefully, um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> your job is quite a big one. And I imagine everyone has days of stresses, but uh, potentially you may be more so dealing with such an important aspect of care. What is your favorite way to de-stress and unwind after a long day? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking that. So I'd say um, two ways. I would say even to try to avoid stress, um, I I really like to exercise. So I I don't like getting up early, but I I do wake up to exercise. Not every day, but many days of the week. Um, And I usually feel much more alert, awake, um, and just ready uh, to head in and and to have really amazing, um, sometimes challenging conversations. It just really um, helps my mental acuity as well as just the endorphins. You you feel good overall. Um, The second thing I I try to do is is also... um, express gratitude and thank people because you're right. Like, and many, many people, whatever your job is, it is many people are under a lot of stress for many reasons. It's not even just their job, just being appreciative and, um, and showing gratitude to other people, uh, is a, is a way I try to at least, uh, end the week on a Friday is all right. Who's one person, even if it's just a, a quick note to, to thank them or tell them they did a job well done, um, whether it be at work or on my home life, something that I practice. And then I would say, you know, to de-stress, I, I, one of the things we did during COVID was we bought a home. Um, we moved. So we sold our new home and we bought an old home, um, on a lake in our neighborhood. And so my way of de-stressing is sitting on my deck, um, or going on a kayak or a different sort of boat thing. Um, and just watching the sunset. I find a lot of power in restorative energy in being in nature and being near the water. So I, I really cherish those, you know, 15 minutes of the sun going down, let's say. So that's a, one of uh, a critical way I de-stress after the long day. That sounds gorgeous. And I'm definitely <laughs> going to go away and look up lake holidays immediately after this. <laughs> I highly recommend it. <laughs> definitely going to steal that gratitude thing as well. That sounds really fun. A great way to sort of bring a bit of happiness to everyone else's day as well yeah. as make yourself feel better. Yeah. And who wouldn't like to end the week, you know, going into the weekend on that feeling, feeling appreciated. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Christy. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, thank you, Jade, for giving this opportunity to also highlight and and elevate these important issues of oncology care and disparities specifically in the disability um, community and how capable people truly are. And it's our responsibility as an industry to really do something about it. So I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again. Christy was not only super knowledgeable, but also just a real delight to talk to. Her passion absolutely shone through during that conversation. But sadly, that is all we have time for today and brings season five of the Gold Podcast to a close. I do hope you've all enjoyed listening and keep your eyes on the horizon for our return in season six, where we'll once again be speaking to a whole host of amazing guests from the pharmaceutical industry. Until then, though, thank you for listening. It's goodbye from me and I'll see you next time. Bye.